Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 500 episodes and counting, are available for free. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one So hey everybody, how's right. it going? Welcome right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am here in Los Angeles, and I'm very pleased to have Jonathan Evison back on the program. I believe this is his third time on the show. I think that's right. I know for a fact that he was my very first guest many years ago, episode one. I've known him forever. He's a buddy of mine and uh, one of our best writers. One of our hardest working, most industrious, and productive writers. I think he writes a novel every two years or publishes a novel every two years. That seems to be uh, the way of things for him. A very prolific writer and a great guy. It's fun to see him, fun to catch up. And uh, his new novel is called Lawn Boy. It's available from Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. You're going to hear my conversation with Jonathan Evison in just uh, like a minute. Thank you, God. It is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, God. So uh, the audio you just heard, the gentleman you just heard who was uh, praising God, he comes from a jazz song by this group called the Bob Teal Emergency. And the Bob Teal Emergency, I, I've never heard of them before, but they have appeared on a playlist or even multiple playlists on Spotify that I've been listening to, uh, listening to this week as I've tried to get work done. I'm always trying to fine-tune things, you know? I'm trying to improve my concentration, eliminate distractions. I'm also trying to enjoy life. Like, one facet of that is I got, I got to listen to music, have music on in the background. It's a good thing to have music as part of your life. And so, uh, if I'm trying to blend that into my work existence, I usually listen to ambient music of some kind. And by ambient, I simply mean music without vocals. Jazz music works. Like, whatever it is. I listen to all kinds of stuff. But lately, I've been listening to these playlists on Spotify featuring uh, predominantly avant-garde jazz, like really 
sort of far out there, cosmic sounding jazz, if that makes sense. I don't know if there's a name for that. It all has to do with it. Thank you, God. But you, you can track down any kind of playlist on Spotify if you search enough. So I've been listening to a handful of these playlists, just letting them run. And what I found is that this song by the Bob Teal Emergency, I think it's called A Love Supreme. It's like a tribute to John Coltrane. It keeps popping up. And it's very distinct because it's the one song on these playlists that features vocals. Thought waves, heat waves, all vibrations, all paths lead to God. Thank you, God. So if you... (laughs) Thank you, God. Peace. So if you can imagine me, uh, you know, in my garage, I have a stand-up desk, so I'm standing up. Or maybe I'm sitting down, I'm reading, I'm trying to read better, you know, read more, ingest good things. But I'm in a state of concentration. I've got the curtains drawn, trying to lock in. Music is playing, but it's sort of, you know, it's in the background at this point. I'm focused. And then suddenly... One thought can produce millions of vibrations and they all go back to God. Everything does. Thank you, God. It's a lot to process. (laughs) I'm trying to, like, how do you shake that? I feel like they, like it's a good, it's interesting to listen to, is it not? Is that Morgan Freeman? I don't know who that is. It's probably somebody I should know, but the point is that it's a song that makes you pay attention. Suddenly I'm thinking about God, praising God, thinking about Coltrane, how his life was cut short, how he had a creative breakthrough. God is so alive. God is. God loves. It's a lot to take in. I recommend you listening to the whole uh, to the whole song. It goes on for a long time. <laughs> so then, you know, like I'm working on a book, I'm trying to write, or I'm working on a podcast. Something goes uh, well, I get something done, I hit my word count, whatever it is. I have seen God. I have seen ungodly. None can be greater. None can compare to God. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I guess today is Jonathan Evison. His new book, his new novel is called Lawn Boy. It's available now from Algonquin Books, critically acclaimed, starred reviews. This is just how it goes for, for Johnny Evison. 
He writes great novels. You should read them. He's a funny guy, too. He's got a lot of energy. You want to hear it? Here he is, folks. This is Jonathan Evison. I'm just worn out, dude. I got my gums are bleeding. I got to, you know, we won't go, and I'm bleeding from all over. You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on with my body. But you're hanging in there. You look good. I had some roughage today, too, so. What does that mean? Like Los Angeles, like salad? Yeah, no, like actual spinach. That's what I have to run out of here. (laughs) Your body won't know how to handle it. Right. Uh, I've been eating a lot of airport burritos. Right? But your and your new novel, it's this is your class novel. I mean, I feel like you've touched yeah. on this before. But yeah, this is I've like, always wanted to write a class novel, but I just always thought I would, I would take a broader tack, do it like West of here, you know, multi generational, many points of view. But you know, once I once I found Mike's voice, I thought, well, this is the only lens I need is just this one irreverent working class voice who has all the all you know, pretty much embodies all these problems that 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 the the working poor deal with, you know, I mean, he's got a, a, a developmentally, developmentally disabled older brother. He has to care for a mom who needs him to live at home because she has the income. They're always a paycheck away from losing the house. So like everything was there. And then his job is basically to, to, you know, work in wealthy people's yards, which is what, you know, I, I arrived at landscaping in my thirties. Um, so, you know, and I loved landscaping, but I noticed, and I got really good at it, man. Like I, I mean, mowing like, what, lawn, like, like laying sod, mowing lawn, planting well, shit. Well, dude, and topiary, man, that's my bag. Like, really? I could make you, I could like, I go out there, you got some boxwood out there. I could make you like a, like a merman with an erection, <laughs> and, like some little sucker fish around the bottom or like a, like a sea monster with a flying V guitar and a jean vest on. You could and, do that for real. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty darn good at it. Damn. You've done a lot of different. So this is a, another thing that I think happens, uh, among working class people. You do a ton of different jobs. Yeah. It's not like somebody, well, I guess some people might just landscape their whole lives, but I feel yeah. like you have to, su- to survive, especially in a difficult economic environment. Uh, if you have limited, uh, access to opportunity, you do whatever the fuck you can get your hands on. Dude, I telemarketed sunglasses. I mean, I've sorted rotten tomatoes for the United Grocers. I've checked gas meters. I, I had a job where I hacked up roadkill, you know, for you a wildlife. Up yeah, no, somebody bring in like the hind quarters of a deer that got hit by a semi. I'd have to put a bib on with a big machete and hack that thing up and feed it to the cougars at the wildlife refuge. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every restaurant job... Yeah. Delivering, I delivered But they, they've all served me well. You know what I mean? I mean, I was a caregiver for five years. I wrote a book called The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving. I was a landscaper. I mean, it, it helps to have that knowledge. That used to be kind of the 20th century model for the novelist, you know? Jack London went up to the, he went up to the, you know, the, the Yukon and then, you know, Melville and, uh, you know, you know, Conrad, those guys went out to sea for three years. And even the Trustafari and Hemingway, you know, he went and drove an ambulance in someone else's war. But it was, wasn't his trust fund. It was his wife's. Yeah. Always. But, he, but you know, he had that net, but he yeah. knew that he knew crew experience. And we live in a different sort of literary landscape now. It's more about MFAs and so forth. And I'm not going to shit talk MFAs. I've gotten too much trouble for that. Well, yeah. No, I mean, I feel like, and I feel like that conversation, you know, it yeah. happens so often. It's yeah. whatever floats your boat or however you got to get yeah. to it. I just top. think, I mean, I think... I, I, you know, I would, the only thing I would say is it go out and work some jobs first, you know, and then, then go get your MFA in your thirties. You know what I mean? Yeah. Start honing your crap again. I think you got to have some experience, you know? I do too. I think that's what I was just going to say is that, you know, it may be tough when it's happening, but if you have a, a desire to build a creative life and to write stories, 
if you don't have the wealth of experiences that you accrue by going out and having to do this stuff, then it's going to be harder, I think, to generate. I think one yeah, of the I reasons mean, you're you, left with some really nice distressed sentences. That's right. And yeah. I, I think one of the reasons you've been so generative creatively is that you, you have this huge well to draw on. Yeah. And also I'm, you know, manic off the charts. So <laughs> helps. Yeah, it does. I got a tiger by the tail, man. But you know, you talk about a character who lives with his mom. They're one paycheck away or one bad move away from losing a house. The tenuousness financially, uh, that you're describing is very common. I mean, it's common around the world, but it's increasingly common in this country. And it's not something that necessarily gets talked about. I think coastal cities like Los Angeles, and Seattle and San Francisco and New York, like, you know, these places are maybe a little bit more insulated from it than, um, you know, other, oh, I don't know. I was in San Francisco yesterday and I looked at, I watched the lady get out of her tent in a business suit. Yeah. You know, she had like a business, navy blue business skirt. She looked like she was going to work in the financial district. You got chefs, adjunct professors, people with two, three jobs living in their cars. Man. That's right. And That's nobody right. wants to talk about it. Right. Right. People don't Why? you know, it's, I guess it's like, it, there's there's shame involved. It's painful to confront it. Uh, I think there's guilt on the part of people who uh, are more fortunate, you know, to have to like deal with that disparity and like what do you do about it? But it feels like a very necessary conversation. I always argue uh, that people need to talk about money more. They need to talk about politics more. They need to talk about religion more. Like, I agree. I'm, I'm like that candid guy about money. People are always sort of shocked at my candor. They're like, so, because you know, you can feel them. They, they want to ask you, how much did you make on the movie or something like yeah, that? Yeah. And like, they're kind of trying to feel around to get a sense. And I just say, ah, I'm 140 grand, I guess, after the option. You know, mm. it's, I don't know why people are so weird about it. I never had it. So I really got to explore that in this book. Because, you know, what happened to me is like my dad, after my sister died in a freak accident, my dad took us all up to Washington from Sunnyvale and just left us there. My mom with four kids, you know, three teenagers and me, I was like five or six. And, um, and so he, he left us in this kind of affluent community because he liked the idea of living in an island, but he just didn't hang out. He hung out like six months and it just wasn't going to work. You know, when you lose a sibling, I mean, you, when parents we've, lose we've a talk, kid. We've talked about this. You were, you were like a young child, yeah. but your sister was six. It was like her 16th birthday. Yeah, it was the weekend of her 16th birthday. Yeah. So what I learned is, and this is very much kind of part of the genesis of this book, was that, you know, I was hanging out with kids that were upper middle class, that had money, and I realized that their parents were teaching them stuff that was just completely, you know, I had no access to. I mean, they taught them stuff about money. You know, I learned things like expect the worst, you know, <laughs> the world's made of meat, you know, really <laughs> solid uh advice like that but these kids were learning that you know destiny is a ladder and you climb up and, and here's the main thing they were taught to value themselves okay they were taught that they are worth something and that so if somebody offers you a summer job and you know mr smith offers you 15 dollars to mow the lawn well if you don't think it's worth it you ask for 25 well they've got the safety net of wealth so you got a kid like mike munoz or a kid like i was and it's like if you want to have any social mobility upwardly in this culture, you have to be able to value yourself and take that risk. So I'm five, you know, like fifth generation peasant, but we were always really stubborn, the Evisons. You know, we want to work for ourselves. We don't want to work for the man. So whether it was construction or TV repair or mechanics, whatever, whatever the business was, the business model was always the same. 
undercut the competition. And the result was always the same. You couldn't cover your overhead. You went out of business. And so I finally made this realization from hanging out with these kids that had a little more money that you had to take that risk, even if you didn't have the safety net. And so like I was doing this, uh, right in a pilot for ESPN. This is like 20 years ago. And I happened to know the exec producer and, uh, he went to high school with me and he wanted me to be the head writer. And he said, well, I'm going to hook you up with the producer and you guys will talk about the things. And she, this lady named Susie, she was kind of sketchy. And she's like, well, we're going to put you up in a house in LA and you're going to be the head writer. And we're going to pay you 1200 a month. And you know, cause it's only spec. And, and I'm like, okay, well, all right, let me just talk to Ian and you know, I'll get back to you. I don't want to commit to anything. So I call Ian up. I go, Ian, let's, you know, let's go have lunch and talk, get him excited about my ideas again and he's really excited and, and then I go but here's the thing man it's going to be 12 grand a month the guy didn't even bat an eye he just took a bite of his sandwich he's like done cool cool and, and I realized in that moment it took five generations for my family to get to that moment that not only by asking for 10 times more money did he not bat an eye he was like thinking this is my guy this guy values himself. You know what I mean? He, I, it made myself more valuable. And of course, I left going, shit, I should have said 15. You know what I mean? Right, right. But like, it took that long to learn that simple lesson. And that's what it takes. for If, if you come from uh, some sort of financial uh, you know, deficit like that you, and you don't have the safety net, there's going to be a point, if you want to be upwardly mobile, where you're going to have to say no to a wage that you really need, man. You might have 117 bucks in your bank account and you need it, but you're going to have to say no I, and take that risk. And say, no, I, you're going to need to double that if you want me. Right. And, and it's that kind of value that social mobility comes from. But wealthy people or people that are born on third base, you know, it's just sort of built in for them. You right. know? Well, and, you know, I talk like it, it brings to mind writers because writers are so often asked to work for free. Uh, the media professions, you know, whether it's journalism or uh, television. Or, All of places where the working class are underrepresented. But, under, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. There, there are these barriers to entry. You know, you have to be able to intern for free. You know, that's a huge barrier to entry right away. So people from means can afford to, you know, you know, a kid from means can afford to spend six months interning at some film you know, company or media company or, you know, journalism outfit. And then you make connections and you get your way in the door. Somebody who doesn't have those means has no shot. So it weeds it out. And it also, I think, um, it winds up diminishing the talent. I just read about this. I mean, but that's like yeah, something... That, that Guardian piece the other day, did you read that? Uh, it's I interesting. Just... People are starting to have this conversation. I'm so glad because people are sending me because I've been harping on it for years and now it's like, it's really starting to come to the zeitgeist. We go figure. I mean, you know, for every one of these people we're talking about living in their car, there's five people that are like, man, you know, if I lost my job, it would that's be me. rough. Right, right. And that's probably why they don't, you know, they don't want to talk. Those people probably don't want to talk about it because it hits too close to home. The really wealthy people don't want to talk about it because it's not their problem. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I think about my own experience, like sort of run the gamut. Like I'm a pretty privileged guy, but my dad was the first person in his family to go to college. My grandparents, I saw them live in basically a shotgun house in the bayou, lived off social security. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, my, my family seems to have spanned this like wide experience of, uh, like American, uh, economic life. And, and you know what, for them, they'd be proud of this, you now. I mean, this is what they wanted for you. you that's know right. I mean? So it worked in a sense, the American dream worked, but I also live in Los Angeles, uh, and I walk out my door and there's tents, you know, I go for, I go to take my dog for a hike. And there's a dude for, you know, you see the same people. You start to get to know these homeless people in Los Angeles, at least visually. There's a dude who just like lies literally every morning. I find him. He's just lying on his stomach on the sidewalk. 
like with his nose mashed against. Like he's he's probably not well, and he's wrapped in one of these space blankets. You know the the yeah, like the thin the EMT, metallic yeah. EMT blankets, and I'm just like, what is his story? Like what is going on with uh, our world, and how can we? This can't be the best we can do. Is always the fifth thought oh, that crosses my mind. Oh, no, it's not. We have enough resources yeah. to sustain life for every person on this planet, and yet every four minutes or four seconds or something, someone starves to death. Well, I was and I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine. It was sort of like a back and forth debate type thing over text message, and I was like, we were talking about like what we want to see happen, and I was like, I want to see single payer health care. I want to see, um, you know, a. a, a $25 minimum wage or what I like adjusted for inflation. If you go backwards and you adjust for inflation, like I want to say minimum wage to meet inflation should be like 27 bucks. Oh hour. yeah, probably not I mean, 15. The I American mean, dream was have 3.5 kids, a two car garage, send all your kids to college on a single household income. So yeah, yeah. I mean, do the math. Yeah, no, well, that's how it used to be. I mean, that's how it sort of used to be. I want to see more unionization. I want to see free state college. So I was, I was saying like, these are my pie in the sky. Like, this is what I would love to see happen. And he's like, good luck finding the money. And that was kind of the end of the text exchange. Not because I think one of us got busy, like a, a, one of our kids needed us or whatever. But then after the fact, I was, I was thinking about it and I was like, what do you mean? Good luck finding the money. We have the fucking money. It's just, it's a matter of allocation. Yeah. Well, and here's the real frustration for me is that both sides of the political spectrum have thrown us under the bus. I mean, you know, me and you, we swing very left or whatever. But the truth is, I mean, the left, the progressivism did just as much to ruin this economy as anything with stuff like NAFTA and free trade, killing the labor movement. So everybody's to blame. Nobody really wants to fix it. Both sides of the political spectrum. So I'm at the point where now I'm just all about the local. I mean, the only things that give me hope, we're not going to fix this from the outside. I don't care who, what candidate you run out here. I don't care if it's Bernie or Joe Biden. I don't care who you run out there. Nobody's going to be able to fix this. We have to fix this at home in our neighborhood. And, it, you know, the things that inspire me are the fact that all these little redneck logging towns I've known my whole life, they now have farmer's markets. So stuff like farmer's markets, stuff like craft brewing. Independent like, bookstores. Yeah, independent <laughs> bookstores. Absolutely. You know, uh, uh, co-op daycares, things, everything that gets us back to regionalism, back to local. Localism. See, that's what globalism did to us. You know, what I mean, it spread the money all out, all over the place, and no, we don't have any sense of identity as a nation. We have no more labor movement, and the only way we're going to fix it, really, as far as I'm concerned, is like starting on our block. I mean, I just don't see. I don't, you know, as much as I loved Bernie Sanders, and you know, I was a Bernie bro, whatever. Deride me, however you want, but. I mean, I liked his rhetoric. You I, know? Did too, I did too. And I, but I also happily voted for Hillary. That's the difference. I think some Bernie bros or Bernie supporters transitioned from being a Bernie bro to being like a Russian bot. And suddenly once the general came, they were like, well, Hillary, no. Yeah, I would, I would have been, I, I'd have been, I, I don't like the Clintons. And that started before Hillary. I didn't like Bill. I didn't like that big peanut head. I, I, I thought, you know, after, after 12 years of Reagan and the Bushes, like, really, we're going to go centrist now? I mean, that's when we really needed to go. So I never really liked them in the first place. But yeah, definitely the lesser of two evils. What are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get but to I mean, then, you know, I don't like, I don't like the politics of the left either. It just seems to me that like. You know, the right's this isolationist. They do, they, they do their damage one way, but the left does it in a different way that looks a little more, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it, it looks a little better on the surface. But, but the, kind still of the, paid the, off. The, the shit we perpetrate in the third world with, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just got no faith. In it's, an imper it's an imperfect game. I think that, and this is something I, I've, I think I was saying even on this show recently, but I've been saying it a lot. When I try to think of like, ideally, what would I want to hear a politician say? 
And it's like, I just want us to start with the least among us. And the message that I'm drawing from doesn't really have much to do with politics, but is often espoused in religion of all places. And I'm not even a religious person, really, yeah. uh, at least like not in a uh, traditional sense. But it's like, why, why can't why can't we just do that? Start with the least among us. Like, wouldn't that be the function of a healthy right. society? Bring everybody up. Yeah. Yeah. But, but well, well, we know the answer to that. Because some CEO's got to have a $10 million, right. you know, uh, penthouse and then immediately put $10 million into renovating it and spend one week a year in it. And like, I don't, you know, I, this is a real story in San Francisco. You know, this guy put $20 million into his condo, this tech CEO or whatever. And I'm thinking $20 million, how far would that go? Just just that guy's condo. How far would that go to, to helping solve homelessness in San Francisco? Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, you could feed everybody on the street for, you know, well, and the, and the yeah. tax cuts that the Republicans enacted, uh, you know, last December or whatever it was, I want to say the big banks in the United States just saved like something like $6 billion. So it's like, where did that money, which they don't, you know, we could, we could spend, we could do a lot of good with $6 billion in this country. Uh, that is instead going to these giant banks that have billions anyway. It seems com completely obscene to me. And I feel like uh, there is another story in the news recently kind of just like made me pause. And it wasn't actually even in the United States, but it was of a similar, uh, along a similar line of what you were just talking about. Uh, you know that Chinese company, Alibaba? It's like they're Google or something. It's like this yeah, gigantic, yeah. I've huge it, yeah. Chinese uh, technology and media company or whatever. And I want to say the guy's name is Jack Ma. He's their CEO. And I want to say he bought a $700 million house. Like something like like the eye popping number. Like I can't even believe there's a house that's worth that much. Yeah, money. I mean I know there's guys that have boats that are like that. Much. Yeah, but I, like my question is, at what point do we start to go French Revolution on these assholes? <laughs> like, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. Like Bring back the guillotine. There are people starving in the streets. Like it gets it gets complicated though because it's like where's the line? You know, because I don't, I don't. I draw you a line. I mean, here's what: as a guy, I've done better the last ten years than I've ever done in my life. I will tell you right now, I would put a cap at. I don't think anybody needs more than half a million dollars a year. What I do on, you know, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. I got two houses. I, I do everything I want. I love my life, and and that's giving me. I could have three times that, and. And and I, I wouldn't even need that, but I'm just saying, if you need more than a half million dollars a year, depending, it depends where you live too. I mean, if you're living in San Francisco, you, you might. Yeah. Okay. Well, you could you could adjust it. You right. could adjust it to the economy, but relative, on a relative basis, like I, I, I would be, I would do that I, if I made, you know, if suddenly one of my books sold four million, I, I, I give it all. I, okay, you stop me at five hundred thousand. Just take the rest of it. Put it into some, I'd be happy to do that. Well, they talk about, you know, that we can't raise the minimum wage. Like, and I always think about this, like, wow, there's all this fuss about how the minimum wage can't, it's going to cripple businesses, but there's never a maximum wage. There's no end to how much these motherfuckers can make, yeah. you know, despite the struggles of most people, not only in America, but in the world. And so it just gets frustrating. It's like, why don't we talk about a maximum wage? And I don't want to stifle ambition or whatever. Like, I think people who are driven to create things and start businesses. I don't mind people enjoying financial rewards, but like there's gotta be some sense to it. Well, there's a point where you gotta just say, there's, there's a deficit in this person. If they need that much, if they can just walk over homeless people every day to their $20 million condo, there's something missing. Like, and, and, and we've just been sold this joke of trickle down for so long, you know, since Reagan, and, and they've proven it wrong a million times. The problem is, is it really trickles up. You pay the working man well, 
he will spend 110% of his income. You know, he'll spend all of his income and an extra 10% get himself in credit. Whereas the wealthy, you know, the top half, they're going to they're gonna stash the majority of their money, you know, offshore somewhere. And I think the number is something like, you know, I'm bad with numbers, so, you know, Fact check me, folks. This could be <laughs> fake news. But I think something like they put like 15% of the money back in. So, and if that's the case, you're dealing at, that's a 95% deficit, you know? Well, I mean, it's like, yeah, though they just invested in stocks and it's basically just traded among halves then at that point. You know, it doesn't, I guess that maybe these companies, if they get invested in, will will hire. But yeah, I think it's been proven that trickle down's a fallacy. It doesn't actually yield what it is supposed to yield. And uh, that's why I say start at the bottom. I'm not very smart financially, obviously, if I'm saying take everything I make over five. <laughs> we're, we're writers. <laughs> but but like, it seems to me that like the stock market is really a problem we don't talk about because you got all these like sort of wealthy people that are, you know, very progressive, virtue signaling how their progressive values. They're all about, you know, you can identify however you want on the spectrum, all this stuff. But meanwhile, they're just like invested in the hilt into the war machine, you know? I mean, they're making money off of GE and you know what I mean? We never talk about that. Like it's, it's okay to... It's, it's really hard to be invested in the stock market and to do so in a way that's fully ethical it's hard yeah. to, it's hard to participate in the economy period and i'd say it's almost impossible yeah i mean i would say if i was going to have a stock portfolio i'm going to put it in guinness les schwab like stuff i use i like les schwab man half the time i go in there they don't even charge me they just fix my flat i drink a lot of guinness i would just put it into stuff i use but I, I mean, that's not where people are making their money. People are making their money. They don't even want to look at, you know, but people I, are like making money on the, on, you know, on, on medical bankruptcy. You know, people are making money just, credit you know, to, very progressive, to, ostensibly liberal, nice people that talk the same language as us. And yet they're making money off of people's, you know, you know, medical debt. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's very complicated. And I feel like. There are some funds, like I know there are, I've heard of like green mutual funds and they try to, they try to make sure that you're only invested in companies that are, you know, environmentally responsible. There are also funds out there and, you know, you can, you can do it if you, if you roll up your sleeves and do some research, but well, I got the sleeves part. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have the money, but it's a, you know, what, what do you think, uh, as an outgrowth of writing this novel, like, did you learn anything that you didn't already know about? what it means to be working class in America. I mean, you're drawing on a lot of experience and, and this is, uh, this is your life to an extent, but did you find something out about it that you didn't previously know? You know, that's a really good question. And I afraid my answer is a little disappointing. Nothing jumps out at me in that way. I love the experience of living in it and living with my characters as much as anything. It was just, it, it just gave me the, the perfect vehicle to put all these thoughts that I had already developed in place. I don't know that, um, I've had that experience before with books, I think, but with this one, I don't know. I've been thinking about this stuff for so long that I was just really kind of looking for an apparatus to hang it all on. And, well, and I so. remember, I think last time you were here, you were talking to me either on the show or once we finished uh, recording about, you know, like I'm working on this thing about this guy named Mike Munoz. I've been doing this blog. You've been like, you were like working to find the character and find the voice through that, right? Yeah, well, I was doing that anonymously because I had thrown away my novel that I had signed a contract for and got paid in advance, and I was afraid to tell anybody. And I was like, I was just feeling hemmed in by the career. And, you know, I wrote eight books before that weren't published or seven books before that weren't published 
And so I just needed to write to write and remember why I was doing it. And so I just started that blog anonymously. And that's when I found the voice. That's when I realized that Mike gave me this perfect lens for this book and that I didn't need the big multi-generational. I still may write that too. I think I got a lot of, if you would ask me 20 years ago, how do you feel about this? If you would ask me 20 years ago, where we'd be today, didn't, didn't you kind of feel like we would have really been pretty close to a close, you know, post-racial society? Closer. You'd ask me in the in, in the mid nineties, but like going forward, like I think in maybe twenty years we got this thing cracked. Well, obviously that's wrong. I always thought class would then usurp race in terms of being the focus of American literature because since Twain, basically it's been race, and here we are again. And I keep feeling like race just keeps getting used to trump class. Like that's what they did in the antebellum South. I mean, sharecroppers, black and white had plenty in common. They lived the same lifestyle. They did the same work, but you know, who was it? The wealthy people come in there and say, no, you're better than that black guy over there. They divided us. Is this starting to sound familiar? They divided us along racial lines, along social lines. They create these culture wars. And really the underlying thing here is class and money and and, and wealth disparity and wealth consolidation. So I feel like, I, I mean, as much as we still need to talk about race, I feel like we really need to talk about class because that's the one underneath it. And, and, and the proof is the fact that they use race to, to, you know, basically run interference. Because if we all get together, man, we got the numbers. That's right. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I was just reading, a, I guess it was right around MLK Day, but it was like Martin Luther King's message. Everyone always uh, thinks of him primarily as a fighter for racial justice, which obviously he was. But uh, like right in the days before he was assassinated, he was talking so much about uh, economics and issues of class and how we need to have economic justice in addition to racial justice. Uh, like the two Otherwise the American dream's a joke. Like we were just talking about if, if one, if, if the top half has got the safety net to value themselves, but nobody else can, nobody else can have mobility because they can't take the risk. Then it's just the game. It's fixed. You have 1% of the country that owns 40% of the wealth. I think yeah. that's, I think that's a real statistic. Yeah. And I think it's less than 1%. I think it's like probably 0.001% really. And you you know what I mean, I don't think millionaires are the problem. It's billionaires. You know what I mean? That's a, and I was thinking recently, millionaires are usually just pricks. You know what I mean? They just like park in the handicap spot, but, but it's the billionaires that are strangling the world. Billion, you know? like to be a billionaire. Like don't, like, don't you have to be a little bit off? Like, why can you not? I guess Warren Buffett seems sort of jolly. Like maybe there's a, a benevolent billionaire. Yeah. There was the one Rockefeller who was nice. Yeah. Know? I mean, like maybe it's possible. Yeah. I guess it doesn't. But doesn't. then there's the other Rockefeller that's like, you know, suppose, you know the people that are like taking the, the, you know, blood cells from kidnapped babies to yeah. do blood transfusions. Or, I just don't, I don't like, I, like, I guess in my head, I'm like, man, if I got to a certain level of wealth, like a, like we talked about, I'd start to give it away. Because I, I'm a, you feel conscious just of all guilty, the, yeah, guilty, but also just conscious of the need. Yeah, I mean, you would have to agree that in a way, by some objective standard, they're unconsciousable. Because how how can they how can they have that much when they're so they're people that have nothing? And that's where I, another thing I've noticed about, and I have run around to a lot of dog and pony shows. I've ended up, I mean, I had dinner with Jeff Bezos. They sat me right next to the guy. Oh, right, I remember you telling yeah, me yeah. this. So. The, I don't remember where I was going. The, 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 the I noticed they don't like to they don't like to acknowledge luck. You know, really wealthy people tend to just think they earned it. And even if they were self made, they turn into this thing where it's like I earned it. You know, I'm not just going to give it away. You got to do it yourself. And but they don't acknowledge luck or good fortune, or they don't acknowledge that their wealth has been, you know. You built on the back of slave labor, essentially. You know, I mean, this country, the wealth of this country was built on that. You know, but they don't acknowledge that. 
Yeah, no, it's it's, it's whereas much- people like me and you that get a little good fortune and are able to get by and and weather our problems financially are just fucking grateful every day. Like I think you know, every time my friend has a GoFundMe or something, anybody, I'm like, yeah, man, I got seventy five bucks, or you know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sending I'm sending a monthly check to the Sierra Club and the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law. I don't have that much money, right? You know what I mean, right? And, and yet the guy with you know the guy that that that's worth five hundred billion dollars, what's he doing? Yeah. I don't understand. And like, so, okay, so here's a thought project because, uh, you know, like they're like the Powerball will go up to like 500 million and I'll be like, all right, like I'll, I'll buy a $2 ticket. Like, it's just like a fun game. You know, I'll get a $2 ticket. And then immediately you start to get into this mindset of like, well, what happens if I won? Like, what would I actually do? Would it be like Frodo with the ring? Would it fuck with you? Because, you know, you always hear these oh. stories, you, you hear these stories of people ruining their lives. First of all, they somehow blow all the money and destroy themselves. But then I also wonder, like, you know, you talk about, like, I would give it away, but then I would think to myself, well, I want to make sure I give it away wisely. I don't want to waste it. I want to make maximal use of it. So, or like, so, okay. So do you set up a foundation so that the money can continue to be of benefit for generations and generations? Or do you say to yourself, there are urgent, immediate needs right now in this world. And this money should go to it immediately in emergency fashion. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> I almost think you just send everybody a check for 50 grand. You know what I mean? Figure it out yourself, but let's just level the playing field out. I, I, I lose a little faith in the foundations because you hear stuff about the Clinton Foundation and the Gates Foundation and, and you start to dig deeper and you find out that a lot of the money, I think, with the Clinton Foundation goes into like mechanized and corporate farming and stuff that really isn't that good for, you know, the global equilibrium. And, and so I, I don't, and you hear about how, you know, the CEO of Goodwill makes like fucking $8 million a year and like <laughs> puts all the little uh, regular shops out of business. And like, so I don't know. I honestly think, man, I, it's because I'm a peasant. I'm just like, I get that money i just get i just go to the phone book and just start sending people 50 grand <laughs> change their life Figure if they out. want to fritter it away at least they're going to fritter it away back into the economy you know it's not going to screw up the balance of things you know yeah you got to take personal accountability for that wealth but like you know how many people's lives could you just so totally change with that money what do you, know? you fe- how do you feel have you ever thought about or read about this idea of uh guaranteed basic income in a country like no, fin- it doesn't like Finland or Norway or somebody. Yeah, like basically everybody gets a check. You're going to have guaranteed by the government like a certain baseline. It's not a lot, but it's like that way. Like nobody's without, you know, basic communist. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what be, I don't. You know, like I said, I mean, I think there could be some gradations of wealth. I just think there's a certain point where it just gets absurd. I mean, I, and I said five hundred thousand dollars. You're right. Maybe that doesn't go as far in L.A. as it does in in you know Lincoln, Nebraska. But like still. I mean, you should be able to do all right on a half million a year in L.A., you One know? Would think. And if you have a half million a year, why do you even have to live in L.A. anymore? You know right. what I mean? Right. If, if, if you're making a half million, I don't, you know. I it don't depends know. what you do. If, yeah. you, if you're if you're at an office in L.A., then then you got to be here. Right. But otherwise, yeah, like get out and move to Ohio or some shit. I don't know. I do think there should be a cap. And, I, you know, I just don't, I don't see who, the only people who would argue against that are people that want to be that wealthy or... People that already are that wealthy. One one of the things I want to read more about and understand better is uh, capitalism and its alternatives. Like, I wish I were better versed in this stuff because... Me too. I'm I'm open to the idea that capitalism is the best, worst option. Like, of all the terrible options out there, you know, this one has proven to be the least worst or whatever. Yeah, except that we don't even really... I mean, it's just not what it was, you know... But but it's... I guess my point is that in America... It is considered blasphemy to even question 
the orthodoxy of uh, capitalism good, market-based economy good. And it's like, okay, it's good for some people. It's working out great for a very small number of people. But what about the, everybody else? Like, is it the best system? It's just a question. You know, I wonder, like, what, like where... Well, it's unsustainable for the whole globe, so it can't be. I mean, there's got to be a better system, right? I mean, the globe cannot sustain it. If it, it the best system could feed everybody in the world. So I, I, maybe, maybe the best system is invented. I don't know, but you can't call capitalism the best system. Yeah, it doesn't sustain people. It doesn't, you know... It's got to be some hybrid of, like, capitalism, socialism... You know, it's going to be some big amalgam and it's not going to be some pure uh, orthodox. I think people want that. You know, these free market ideology people who just like they, they can do no wrong. I think they got to you, you got to get comfortable with the idea that we're, we're already an amalgam. You know, we already have socialism in America. Medicare, Medicare is, uh, you know, socialism. Uh, the fire department, you know, you can argue most, uh, most of our best institutions really, I mean, they're beloved, but yeah. it's like, you know, I think we're going to have to be willing not only to accept the fact that it's not going to be, uh, some perfectly, uh, orthodox singular system, but also we have to stop. I think thinking of ourselves as having it all figured out. Like what is this constant chest thumping in America? Like we're the best. We've got it figured out. Greatest nation on earth. Listen, I, I love this country in my own way, but I think we have to be honest about our like where we fall, where we're falling short, and we have to be willing to look at other countries that might be doing it better and steal from them, like steal their ideas. I mean, yeah, and we also have to let uh, you know certain portions of the culture create, you know, basically uh, controlling the dialogue. You know what I mean? It's the whole manufacturing consent thing. Like, I mean, the the dialogue is rigged. You know what I mean? We can't talk about communism and call it communism or socialism and call it socialism without everybody getting their hackles up. You right, know what I mean? Right. And they've created a dialogue that they see here's where, you know, my fall short. It's like the big, they, it's the guy, you know, the guys in the black man. <laughs> I don't know. Like you know? the guy in the gleaming towers, you know, but it, it feels like, uh, something's got to give. And it feels like we have to find a way to have a more intellectual dialogue about this. And I think that I don't know. I think that eventually, like you say, or we could just pull them out of their fucking ivory towers and start lopping their heads off, man. I got no problem with it. Well, I mean, people are going to, like you said, it's unsustainable. People are going to wind up in the streets because they're going to be starving and homeless. And, and these people off. are going to move into that fucking underground shelter under Denver International Airport after they blow us all. I mean, I don't, what are they thinking? Did you, like, like somebody's got to buy their product. Somebody's got, you know, there's got to be some money coming up to them. I mean, what, it's like a game. Okay. Now you've got it all. Now what, what now you're going to go like, you know, Live on the moon or whatever. Well, no, or this is the thing. They have the, the you have these rich dead? people who are buying. There was an article I think in the New Yorker about these people who are buying like 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 luxury underground silos. I've seen them, yeah, in like Kansas. But there's also this movement I think of. See, like, after we start lopping their heads off and lining them up <laughs> against a wall, we just fucking open the hatch and let homeless people go in there. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. I think we got to simplify this. They're buying. Uh, they're buying properties in New Zealand and shit like that. And I'm like, that can't be. I mean, this is not the solution. This is not a healthy society. You know, and why are we talking about? life on mars i mean good god i know it's getting bad here on earth but it isn't as bad we still have an atmosphere i always I mean, say i always say fuck mars yeah. i don't want to go to mars yeah i'd way rather go to neptune it's like 800 degrees uh, just, you know like really find thick me atmosphere l listen if somebody can can demonstrably prove to me that they found like new earth like one of the moons of jupiter or some shit is actually proven to have like it's yeah. basically like an eden 
Right. I how, would consider how that. How are we going to get 8 billion people out there, though? You know but, I mean? I mean, you know, I would. that's something I would consider being, like, a, a pioneer. You know, like, okay, well, we'll start over on New Earth. But, like, going to Mars and living indoors in, like, a, you know, a hellscape of... It doesn't sound... It barely before. worked out for Matt Damon, man. <laughs> barely. He was hanging by a thread. I so. had an author in here, though, and I'm going to blank on her name. I can see her face. I got to look back through my, uh, my archives. But she was like, I, like, we were talking about this very thing, and she very sincerely said, I want to go. I used to feel that way about... I, I mean, when you asked me when I was 20 and I was a romantic young poet, I thought... It didn't even occur to me how lonely this would be. I thought I wanted to go out on a on, on a like in a, a space capsule and just float me out into deep space. I thought I would just be so, you know, <laughs> God, you oh, look at that, look at that fucking crab nebula over there. And, you know what I mean? I thought I'd be, you know, I didn't even really stop to question. That's like the my fucking nightmare floating through space. Well, now it is to yeah. me, but when I was twenty, I can honestly remember thinking that, like, oh my God, it would just be such a sense of wonder. Even if I had to slowly starve to death, this would be like, but not not so much anymore. You know what my version of that was? What? I wanted to drive an 18-wheeler. <laughs> That's good. I just wanted to be left alone. I had been delivering pizzas, and I was like, I like to drive. Nobody's fucking with me. There's no boss in my ear. You should deliver pizzas in an 18-wheeler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a market for that. But I, you know, that was my thing. I was like, I really want to drive a truck. And I'm like, not really, I think, giving credence to just how tough that work is. Like sleepless, and you got hemorrhoids, and you're fucking sleeping in that truck. and. That's oh, you're getting gacked in a truck stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, like finger banging underage girls, <laughs> and like, I know this isn't fair to teamsters. <laughs> so you uh, you've written how many novels now? I've written fourteen. Fourteen, but how many have you published? Five and one coming. Five and one coming. See, so, and you're always a book or two ahead. I would be too, but I threw one away. So. so okay, so and you threw one away at this stage of your career. Yes, right. That was happens every once in a while. The thirteenth book was, was it painful? Were you like, okay, I've done this before, no big deal? Or yeah, I was it... depressed for about two hours. Two hours. You know, I metabolized quick. I literally, literally it was actually sort of a relief because I'd tried to reinvent it so many times that it become like it was becoming like a sausage making operation. I was I was too caught up in the logic of the thing, you know, spreading stuff out on the ping pong table, trying to make it work, and 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 what I ultimately decided is. Well, the center just didn't hold, so it's never going to work. And so, you know, it's unfortunate that I can't reuse any of it because it just doesn't work that way. Because maybe some of my best world building in terms of the town of Big Fork and some of my favorite characters like Clem and like characters that still live inside of me. So they're not lost. I love them, but they're never, nobody's going to ever read them. So how do you, when you are on to a novel and you, it starts to come together, like how, what, like, what are some of the signs that you pick up on when you feel like it's it's starting to work like you know you, you felt like the center wasn't going to hold and you knew when to pull the plug on, on well i actually i should have pulled the plug like six years earlier i mean really technically because i kept going back and trying it i it became this sort of you know white whale kind of thing like i know i can beat this thing and i'm like why do i want to do this i don't want to wrestle with the work i mean i want to i want to enjoy what i'm doing so um i don't well one thing i learned and this is, and I will say that honestly, failing on that novel is the best thing. I learned more failing on that novel than I learned succeeding on the other five. Clearly, way more. Um, there are corners I will never paint myself into again, for instance. But what I did is I went back and I did this narrative archaeology. I wanted to find out why the center didn't hold. I mean, I knew I had all these divergent themes and lots of points of view, but this is nothing I haven't pulled off before. Right. I mean, I had more characters in West of here. I had a you know, bifurcated timeline and all that other stuff. So I went back and, and I looked through all my books and I found in them, in each book, I found one paragraph or passage that was like the heart of the book. 
like basically acted as a thesis in a persuasive argument. Although I didn't plan it that way, I just I found it when I hit it. I go, this is it. This this is the this passage is the thesis of this novel, and it t- it's in every other sentence. It's in the fabric of the whole novel. And so, like in West of Here, it was a Lord Jim's soliloquy on his deathbed, and in and, uh, and Revised Fundamentals, it was when Ben's saying, listen to me, you know, nothing's indestructible, blah, blah, blah. You know, these are paraphrases, obviously. In Harriet, it was when Harriet was in Juno with her daughter, and she's just kind of telling herself to be in the moment, look across the daughter at her... Uh, look across the table at her daughter and, you know, s- smell the salty air or whatever. But... He, and then it wasn't in that book. I didn't have it. So then on the next book, I already knew what my penultimate scene was in the book I just finished, which I was calling Cave Dave for a while. I don't really have a title for it, but I already knew what the penultimate scene was that was the heartbeat. So I just went like 300 pages ahead and wrote it or 400 pages ahead and wrote it. And then I knew, and then, then I wrote the whole novel with confidence. So you were writing towards never, that. Yeah. In a way, I mean, I, the way I write, cause it's character driven and I can't, I'm always going to let my characters make their own decisions and complicate their own journeys. I'm not going to use them like, you know, Nabokov's galley slaves. But uh, so I didn't write directly at it in like an outline-y kind of like logical way. But I knew that it was going to end up there. And I knew I I didn't know what decisions they'd make because that's how plot is. You know, it's just the decisions that complicate the journey. But I I, I was just so much more confident all the way through because I didn't. You know, I didn't have that creeping anxiety. Am I going to pull this off? Do you, I knew do you I was normally pull it do off. you normally know when you're uh, like where your books are going to end? Like, do you have some sense of the where you're headed? I do in terms of the arc, and it's kind of like you know between like what their reality is and what their idealized reality is. If that's a hundred percent, you know, the characters somewhere like maybe twenty five or. 30% there or 20% there, just enough to be hopeful. Right. See, like west of here, you know, Craig stopped smoking pot and he moves to Aberdeen. I mean, it doesn't sound like much for a 600-page book, but that's what hope looks like. I mean, it's usually going to end on a... Um, sometimes people think my books are depressing, but I don't. I always look at my ending as hopeful, but but that's modern realism. That's that's what hope looks like. Hope doesn't look like winning the Powerball. Right. Hope looks like, you know, getting your ass in gear and, you know, Craig needed to smoke pot. He needed to get out of Port Angeles. And so, you know, moving 80 miles and start, started coaching youth basketball, that's what hope looks like. Just living. Yeah. Like choosing to continue to live. And, and living on your own terms, you know, and don't, 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 not accepting the status quo, not being what uh, everybody expects you to be. How do you do it? You have three kids now. You are a tireless worker. Like, how do you, do you have to, do you still do this thing where you like, you, you get in the uh, RV or you go up to the other house and you just, you burrow for like two or three days a week? Two and a half days, 16 hours, 16 hours, eight hours. And but this is not something I don't think a normal person can do. I mean, I think that, you know, since I'm bipolar, it works for me. I just have to really get that tiger by the tail and, and just be really disciplined about it. And that's really why I write is because I need that focus because I'm a hot mess otherwise. I need the focus. That's why I could write seven books and keep going. It's not because I thought, you know, number eight, it's got to be number eight. It was just because it... it I'm the best me. I'm the best me. I'm the most expansive, most organized, most calm, happy me when I'm inside the work. Are you uh, like taking medic? Are you on meds for bipolar? Yeah, like eight beers a night and three shots of tequila, (laughs) some weed. That's it. Yeah, that's it. No, because uh, you know I have friends that that deal with the same kind of biochemistry, and you know I know you know I've lost friends to benzos. I've you know I have friends that have had psychotic breaks because the medicine was mismanaged. I know how to manage beer, tequila, and weed, and exercise, and sex. And that'll do it. Yes, lots of all of them. <laughs> and you're and by, good. And by sex, I mean, you know, me and a bottle of lotion half the time. I mean, you know how hard it is with three kids to even find a, 
you know, <laughs> like the other day, uh, 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 you know, because with three kids in the house, not the other day, a couple months ago, Emma is my, my, my second daughter's on top of Owen, you know, they're wrestling and she's pounding up on top of him, like on his stomach. And she goes, look, daddy, alone time. We're having alone time. <laughs> there's so many times your kids walk in on you. I mean, there's nothing you can do. We've had one weekend together, childless, and that was Sundance. When, when Fundamentals closed Sundance, it was the one weekend in nine years that Lauren and I have had a child-free weekend. One Jesus weekend. Christ. I've had lots of it like this, but I hate it after yeah. a while. You know, yeah. I'm just, you know, kind of scrolling through pictures of my kids at one in the morning being That's tough. That's tough. But um, but we're both of the sort of mind that we don't, you know, we don't really miss the date night. We love our kids so much that it's like we find that we'd rather take them on vacation because we do all this. They're a window to all this experience that we wouldn't do. We just sit around in a pub all day, but you know, instead we go to museums, we do all this stuff for them and it just, it enriches the experience of traveling anyway. So we don't really want to I'm do attached. Yeah. I'm attached to my, my, my clan. I don't like to leave them behind. Me, me neither, man. It's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And, and you know, it's funny. You're talking about, uh, kids and sex, <laughs> you know, and just how like you try to like, ma- you know, manage their understanding of that. But I took my daughter to uh puppy school because we have a new puppy. Oh, I can kind of, can't tell me. I kind of see like sitting in, I, I don't know if I've told this story before on the show, but like we were sitting there in a circle in like a vet's office. That's where it takes place in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. So it's a relatively small room and it's almost like a group therapy, like aesthetic, you know, it's like adults sitting in a circle on folding chairs all the puppies are in the middle. We're all sort of just watching them romp around for most of the time. And then you do a few, you know, a couple lessons or whatever. But, uh, my dog Twiggy just starts getting humped by a dachshund, like just power humped. And everyone's like, sort of what? It's pretty daughter- impressive on those little short legs getting <laughs> up like that. You gotta- my daughter's like, what's going on? What's that? You know? And I looked at the, uh, I looked at the puppy school teacher and I was like, yeah, what, what's going on? What is that? I just tried to think. <laughs> nice move. Yeah. I was like deflecting. Like I, I'm not having that conversation. You're on here. the clock, not me. <laughs> right. That's what I paid you for. But, uh, what was the answer? I want to know. I think they were just like, oh, you know, like somehow it was, it was busy enough and chaotic enough that we were able to sort of sweep it under the rug. Like, not that I don't want to be honest, but it's like, she's seven. We got a little time. I think my I mean, my personal answer is that's a dachshund with something to prove. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's like a little Napoleonic complex going on there. I don't think that was even sexual. Dachshunds are uh, dachshunds are tougher. Like I, I, having witnessed this dog in puppy school multiple weeks, like dachshunds are tough. That's cool. Like they, I have, mean, then we, yeah, they bite an ankle. They've been bullied in their day. But the thing is, you can't take them down because they're low to the ground. <laughs> but they go, <laughs> but they go low. They yeah. they can kind of go lower than you. And they like this. This dachshund beats the shit out of every dog in class. Yeah. Well, you know, you go low enough, and you can bite. <laughs> you can bite some pretty tender areas. That's what they do. Too. That's nice. what they, I want to say. Like, what was it? There's certain breeds that are built like that. And it's I like, just go straight for a dick bite. You well, know? That, that's how I am in a street fight too, man. Because I'm not that big. Yeah, you know, if a guy starts fighting me, I just go straight <laughs> for a dick bite. But it's uh, no, there's like, there's like a passage I want to say in Hunter Thompson where he talks about badgers and how their like fighting style is that they try to get underneath you. They are terrifying. They turn on their back and they want to, and then they want to like you know. They're terrifying. I used yeah. to, have to clean the cages at that wildlife refuge job, I, and that was the scariest thing, man. Scarier than throwing meat to cougars was cleaning out those fucking badger cages, man. Those unpredictable little fuckers. Yeah, man, they're mean. We can swear, right? Yeah, that's good because I've dropped about, <laughs> by my count about fifty. What is this? What was this? This wildlife refuge? Like, well, how many different kinds? It's of- in it's in Merlin, Oregon. It's called Wildlife Images, and I think it's the biggest one in the country. Where, uh, you know, uh, bears that are, you know. Uh, animals that are injured in the wild or taken there to rehabilitate. Oh, right. 
And in a perfect world, they rehabilitate him and set him back in the wild. But a lot of times they don't let that happen because they're living in the ecotone and because human development has gone into their you know, ecosystem, then they end up living in captivity, but it's a hundred times better than a zoo. You know what I mean? It's like, bigger. They have more land. Yeah. And- like, I mean, we had the, the grizzly bear, I think, you know, maybe about 20 years ago, there was that heartwarming story about the little kitten that got in with the grizzly bear that happened at wildlife images. And like, uh, you know, the little kittens inside the enclosure and the enclosure is probably like a half acre. So, you know, that's much better than a zoo. And the kid, you know, the bear's eating out of his big trough or whatever, and the little kitten comes up beside him, and everybody's just standing by the fence, going, "Oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen?" And the bear just kind of lobs a chicken wing at the kitty, and then from that point on, the cat would just like wait behind trees and like jump out and you know, yeah. whap him in the face and stuff. I mean, I, I think I think human beings could learn a little. Human beings, I, like I think it's like very human to love seeing interspecies friendships. Like when an elephant befriends a goat, or you know what I'm saying. Like I love to see that shit on YouTube. I'm a sucker for it. If it like pops up on my feed, I'll always yeah, watch. Yeah, and it. meanwhile, we can't even just get along with each other. Right, right? it's so stupid. <laughs> but I was I was watching. I'm uh, I my wife and I will often watch these David Attenborough na- nature documentaries oh, yeah. to fall oh, asleep at night. Just because oh, they're soothing. Then there's a rousing. Uh, <laughs> it's like super. Erotic. I was going to say I like them. You watch them go to sleep. I see. Yeah. No, but it's just like it's like if I watch something violent or upsetting, it'll be harder for me to sleep. I just like it's just like he's a little me. hypnotic. I'll give yeah, you he's got that soothing British voice or whatever. But um, they did one on tigers. There's like a whole like TV series on tigers, like multi episode. And it was like the first time you'd seen a lot of this footage of tigers in the wild doing whatever, you know, raising their cubs or whatever. But the way that they did it was they mounted cameras onto elephants and they, you know, they had people ride elephants into the, you know, the forest in India or whatever, right up by the the tigers. And the tigers don't obviously don't fuck with the elephants or at least not very often. And they can get just a few feet from them. And uh, there's a person on there too. And I guess the tigers don't even bother with them, but... Like there are, like when you're in the absence of humans, um, I guess all these animals, they coexist out there. I mean, obviously they predate on certain other species when they're hungry, but a lot of times they're just sort of fucking hanging out. They're used to each other. Yeah. It was working out pretty good for a grizzly man until he got eight, you know? I yeah. mean, he was walking up, flipping him crap, joking around, <laughs> wrestling with him. And then they got hungry. one day somebody got hungry. And... Yeah. That, that is one of my favorite documentaries of all time. That's a crazy story. It is. It's an, it's insane. I, I still, everyone calls him stupid, but like, God, can, I mean, didn't you envy him? I mean, like, you did envy I mean, it was almost, rich, it's almost worth the risk of, I mean, if, if, as long as you didn't have any family or whatever, it's almost worth the risk of getting eaten eventually just to have that experience. And man. I just, it just cracks me up too that he had this like, this weird Hollywood storyline where he was like second in line for the Woody role on Cheers. Like, remember that? <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. I don't he was that. like, that's you amazing. know, like, I mean, I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but yeah, he was like an, you know, an aspiring actor, of course, who like said, fuck it and moved up to Alaska and became like the bear guy. But you do like watching that footage. Like I think the whole reason that movie succeeds is because of the footage that that guy shot. And it's hard to deny, like whatever your opinion of his sanity might be, it's hard to deny that he didn't have like a rich experience of life. In the right, time that's that what he- I'm saying. And I, I can't call him crazy for that. I mean, he was right until he was wrong. I mean, he, you know. And and do you think he had a death wish? That's I guess that's the question. I don't movie. think so. I don't think so. I think he had every reason to believe. I mean, it's like I think he just assumed the conformity of the future with the past, to put it in a uh, whatever Kantian terms or whoever that was, Hume, I guess. I think that it was 
going good. And the more he habituated with him and the more comfortable, the more he felt like he was one of them, then there was no real reason to believe that they would, you know, I and mean, that's not crazy. Yeah. And that was just like social life. I mean, I think he was a person who just didn't that, like, this is something that I was, uh, pondering recently in Los Angeles is uh, like, I think vis-a-vis like this homeless guy that I find every morning when I go hiking, lying down, like there's some human beings just don't, it's like, like hanging with other human beings isn't working out. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there are people just cannot relate. Well, to you know, people. a lot of junkies. I mean, entropy is, uh, you know, that would always, yeah, I, I, I can understand it. I mean, I, there's times I feel like that. I mean, I can hermit, dude. As social as I am, I can hermit. I mean, I do it two and a half days a week as it is. I don't even go to the store. You know, just, I know that's only two and a half days, but I'm not really, it's not like I'm cagey when the family gets there. I miss the kids, but I mean, I, I, I could, I feel like I could go a couple months without seeing people. Yeah. I think so too. I think a lot of writers are that way, but I feel like, uh, like I remember when I did, I mean, people are going to laugh every time I bring this up on the show, but when I hiked the Appalachian trail, that was probably the most hermited I've ever been. Well, why would somebody laugh at that? Just cause I talk about it too much. Oh, it's like, the, it's like, the, <laughs> I'll give you the obligatory. It's like the cool, you know, it's like the cool thing you did in your life. Like the one big, Dude, I, I envy that. Yeah. So, but I remember distinctly and a, part of it was a function of age. I think it was like, ju- like the experience was juxtaposed against being in college, which is like the most hypersocial time of your life. And then suddenly you're in like the woods and you're just like talking to yourself. But I remember coming off of the trail and being with friends for the first time after that. And I could not shut the fuck up. Everybody I've talked to that's done that or either the Pacific Crest Trail or that trail said it was, you know, life altering. It is. Well, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's going to test you. It's going to test you. And I think like, you know, if you are, uh, it's physically demanding, but I also think that solitude. What did it take? Two months? I was out for three months. I didn't do the whole thing. I did like 1,100 miles. Um, oh, is that all? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good amount. Yeah. Uh, the full trail's like another 1,000. So, but three months at that age, like that was as much as I could muster. And I had my dog and it was fucking hot. Did you plan to do more? And you just said, I'm out now. Well, like I've done, I, or did you kind of go into it thinking I'm going to try to do like 11? I thought I was going to do the whole thing. It, it, like logistically it made it harder with a dog just because I would have to get off and then you're trying to hitchhike and people don't want to pick up a dog and then you got to find a place to stay and resupply. And it's just like that added a layer. And then when I was up in Maine, hiking south because I went Georgia to West Virginia and then it was just like 110 degrees and I thought my dog was going to die. Yeah. Well, I have a friend, my friend that's throwing the keg party tonight in LA had a dog who took, took a dog hiking down here somewhere in Southern California and it died of heat stroke. Yeah. I mean, so like it's dangerous. And then I went up to Maine and I was going to hike down south to the middle, but then I was on a, I think it's called Sugarloaf. I think that's the mountain in Maine. The trail runs right over it. It's a ski hill, but. So it's central Maine where they found the, the hermit, the guy that was out there. Somewhere for, in there. Yeah. You know that guy. I right? read that book, uh, yeah. Stranger in the Woods. Oh man. Did you read that? No, but I know all about, it. I've read a bunch of, you know, uh, articles and stuff about it, man. Yeah. Like 29 years, never, I only saw one person. He's the most solid most solitary person in like recorded history or like, you know, modern history anyway. Like it's I knew to... immediately he had to be on like the Asperger's spectrum. You know what I mean? Just cause the thing that's so crazy to me is that, uh, for, and for people, uh, who are listening, who might not have context, there was a guy up in Maine who used to rob, you know, the, basically cottages uh, around this lake in a kind of rural part of Maine, beautiful, you know, kind of summer place. And the book is The Stranger in the Woods by Michael Finkel. I actually interviewed him on this show, but um, it's worth reading. And oh, I would I'd dig it. I didn't even know it was a book. The guy, just... the guy did not light a fire. 
because he didn't want to get tracked by smoke. So like those main winters are... 60 degrees below zero. Fuck that. And he said he would stay up in the night. I know that. He would he walk would... in a circle yeah. to keep his body warm. That's yeah, crazy. That's, when I read that stuff, I knew this guy has got to be on the Asperger spectrum, a normal... That guy's a much better example. I was drawing the guy who... The homeless guy that I, that I see in the morning near my hike. But the, the much better example of a person who really just didn't want to be around people is that guy. You know, yeah, no just, family problems. He wasn't running from anything. He just he had, didn't want. He wanted no. to be alone. Yeah, wanted to be alone. Like the the sensory input of life, the the trouble. Because like, to deal with other beings, other human beings, to relate to them. Uh, Did he beat off? I'm just wondering. I know. Not, I'm not trying to <laughs> trivialize this. No, I mean, because when I think about solitude, if, God, if I can get two hours of it, that's one of the first activities I might engage in. <laughs> so I'm wondering, in 29 years, are you gonna? I'm asking that question seriously. Was that broached in there? No. I, nothing I read was there any talk about like... He doesn't he, seem like a sexual Yeah, he guy. didn't seem like a sexual person, but he got a lot of time to think about. Well, what, I'm know, sure he did. He had to have. Earlier if he didn't, he's even more amazing. At least in the summer. If he didn't, that, that's even... Not masturbating for 29 years may be more amazing <laughs> than living in central Maine off the grid for 29 years. I think about that with like monks and shit like that. I know you're not supposed to, but like they got to be beating off. I don't know. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of room under that. Habit. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't mean to bring it down, but I, that was a serious question because I honestly, I mean, like, you know, w this is a guy that didn't light a fire even, you know, and no human contact. I mean, like for me with my biochemistry, like sex is like almost a, it's such a release for me that it's like a need, you know what I mean? Like I'm, you know, my people. wife crazy, you know what I mean? She's just like, ah, <laughs> All right, you know, I'll take one for the team again, I guess. What's your problem? I mean, honey, it's been five hours. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I just, that would be. Guys are worse than, I feel like most guys are, like generally speaking, guys are worse than women in that way. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I I don't know many women that are like that. Yeah, it's a problem. But uh, I guess like, you know, to go back to the way that you work uh, and your ability to to tolerate solitude I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, to be just a hermit living in the woods in some camp, sitting there alone, just like listening to yourself breathe or whatever, that's one thing. But you're working on books where you feel like a real sense of connection and imaginative aliveness of the world that you're building and the characters that you're creating. When that's going well, that's not lonely. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because like I, I, I try to explain this to my wife because she never gets a break. Okay. So I have these two and a half days a week. God love her for being so understanding about it. But as you can see, I mean, 16, 16, eight, I'm like, I'm, I'm using it. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm not taking a few hot tubs and drinking a few beers during that time, but like, it's not me time. So you know when you have kids, you don't have any me time. You barely have time for a shower. When I'm writing, it's not me time. You know what I mean? And some, that's, that's why I think we procrastinate sometimes as writers, you know? Sometimes you have trouble getting going. Oh, I'm going to check my Facebook again. Just because we don't want to give up. It's, it's really a giving up of the self and your space, the space that you occupy and your thoughts. I mean, I'm literally giving myself to the story. And it's wonderful up in there. Don't get me wrong, but it is not the same as having, you know, re you know, regenerative like me time type of thing. And that's, that's, I have to explain that to her because she thinks I get two and a half you know, days a week. She knows, I mean, she sees the page just piling up. She knows I'm working, but I think she maybe overestimates the amount of, but you know, maybe she doesn't because you know, she doesn't even get three minutes, you know? Right, so, right. I mean, but you know, the, you got to do the work and like the, the weird thing about what 
writers do is that a lot of it is just like you're sitting there, you're thinking, you're staring at the screen or at the blank page, you're flipping through a book. Like it's, it's a fickle, weird process. It's not just some linear, uh, speed typing exercise, you know? And so it can look, I think to people who don't necessarily, you know, who don't do it, it can look like frivol, you know, frivolity, but it's not. Or at least, hopefully, it's not. No, hey, man, it's bringing home the bag, keeping the lights on. I was going to say, and by, look, you, you've got a stack of books to prove it. You're getting the shit done. And I love it. I'm so grateful every day for it. And if, they, if my career jumps the shark and they stop publishing them, it might slow me down a little because I'm going to have to get another gig. But I'm not, I, it's not something I couldn't stop doing ever. And what about like the you know like the movie stuff? Like it did. That's I mean, a blessing. Yeah, yeah. but like revise or uh, fundamentals of caregiving, like that came out. Uh, the movie was all over Netflix. I saw a billboard. I would smile every time I saw the billboard here in town. Like that helped book sales. I would imagine it did. It didn't. It didn't help it. I think like a, now, if Netflix had released that, I think it would have been a bigger impact. It was the first time they ever upbid the studios. They did a good job, but it didn't quite do what a theatrical release does to book sales. And you know, also, you know, they wouldn't give us any key art to do a tie-in cover and things like that. But it, it, it has completely backlisted. But what's really been neat about it is that having Selena go in the movie, which wasn't necessarily my favorite casting choice, but has been a blessing because I'm hitting all these 20 year old writers and, you know, 17 to 25 year old writers that are so hard to get. You know, I just wrote a book about an 80 year old widow. You know what I mean? So I'm hitting that 80 to dead demo pretty hard. <laughs> it's just nice. Like the other day I get a Google alert for five must reads for fans of Dawson Creek. I'm like, how did that happen? selena gomez right. so it was a blessing and um you know god will hopefully harriet's in development at focus hopefully that happens it really helps i mean i'm just i just feel really grateful and i'm not precious about it you know what's the worst thing that's going to happen is that somebody's going to walk out of the theater and say oh well, the book was better right you know right or so, well, the book was worse <laughs> yeah. well, that would be the worst but it's never worse occasionally i feel like i want to say lord of the rings i enjoyed the movie more than the book okay well yeah that that could be i'm thinking about like literary like uh you know, Cuckoo's Nest would be the one that came closest to like actually capturing. You know, it's different than the book, but you you, you gotta kind of say it's 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 about as good. You know, Milos Forman, R.I.P. He just yeah, died. Yeah, I know it. He made nothing but good movies. Yeah, Amadeus was amazing. I think too. that yeah, and I, like you know, he also like I feel like there's a common thread among a lot of great directors is that they're pretty judicious about what they work on. They don't over direct. They have like you know, it's like that ten to fifteen films in a career. I guess there. I guess there's different ways to do it, but he, he yeah. was, you know, he fell into that camp. Kubrick, blah blah blah. Well, my friend, you know, I, I ran into Ben Fountain in Dallas, and you know, he's like a book every ten year guy. But man, they fucking land. they're awesome, yeah. And I'm a five books every ten year guy, and I'd like to think they're awesome, but it's just different process. I'm I'm geared. He's a mellow sort of really laid back guy. I'm not that guy anyway. I'm just gonna. I'm just compelled to keep doing it how many how many like do you have a word count like how do you do it like in terms of uh output do you measure yourself or does it no just... i mean I, I i think about a third of the way through the book i pretty much have an idea what the word count's going to be no but i mean like in terms of your daily productivity oh no no i mean it, it just can vary so wildly you know i mean now now i would say i don't put a number on it but like with the last book it's like 500 pages and i, I wrote it in nine months because i was just i was in the zone and i would say I, I didn't have a number but i i say i was doing about um for my two and a half days i was getting about four thousand forty five hundred words done which was that's a lot more than normal but 
you know. That's pretty good. Yeah. No, that's a, but that strikes me. As I'd a, be happy. Look, if I can do 250 words and they make the novel just a little better, that's enough. If I can make any progress, you know, but that's it, enough. But it's like I'm thinking about it and like to go in and to work intensively, 16, 16, 8, and then to go back to your your life and your family be fully immersed in that, be away from your writing. I imagine you're probably reading a little bit, but you're living your life and you're letting the creative part of your brain regenerate itself for the next two and a half days. Yeah, I'm kind of cogitating. A lot of it is what I realized. I've always kind of, I've always kind of approached it like an athlete a little more. That's how I was so easy to fail and just say, ah, this isn't going to work, but I got to finish it because I didn't think I was going to, you know, you don't learn to be, you know, Michael Jordan or something by not practicing, you know, you you got to work to be good. So I've always approached it that way, but like the workflow thing too, like getting yourself mentally prepared for game day. That's a lot of what those other four days a week are. I'm ch- kind of chawing at the, you know, chomping at the bit to try to get there so that I know when I get there, I'm just going to leap in. You do you, know do I mean? you talk to people about it? Are you, are you the guy who's like, I, I got, I got a problem in my novel. Let's talk mm, about it. Yeah, not, it's all no, internal. No, I mean, I text myself. Um, no, I don't talk about it. No. You're superstitious? No, not at all. Yeah. No, I mean, if somebody asks me about it, I'm happy to talk about it. But, like, my friends will just, you know, start rolling their eyes usually. <laughs> Shut the fuck like, up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, everybody's so sick of hearing me talk, including myself, that I don't volunteer the information. Because, like, this is what I do. This is what I've done for fucking 16 days in a row is get in front of people and yap, 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 yap. You know, so unless somebody asks, no. I don't find that it helps me or it hurts me. I'm not afraid that if I talk it out, I'm going to lose the 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 juju or whatever no yeah i mean if anything i would think it would help me with clarity but i can do that with notes do you have a sense anyone do you have a do you have a long arc sense of your career like do you think to yourself like god i want to publish x amount of novels before i check out or i want to be a guy who's publishing novels at the age of 90 or you know what i'm saying like, the cool you, thing to say would be no i don't think about that but yeah i do i mean i think i i, I want to I, I think i mean with my metabolism, the way I'm going, it's not that I have to reach a benchmark, but I'm guessing I'll probably, you know, I've finished six that, that work. I'd like to finish at least that many more, you know, so like maybe 15, you know. Somewhere in a there. Little, 12 to 20, somewhere yeah. in there. Do you, have a, do, you have, do you have a favorite? Do you feel like there's a book that you, you've written so far that, um, you know, I don't know, succeeded in realizing the, the vision that you had at the beginning or you just feels like your strongest worker or are you a person who... The latest book is always the one you feel. There's a little of that. And there's also just, uh, you know, the dictates are different for each one. Um, and and I, I feel like they all work the way I want them to. I mean, you're never completely satisfied. But like, you know, I could say like, I think uh, Lawn Boy is my funniest book or something like that. Or I could say like uh, West of Fear is my most formally ambitious book. Or like certain elements, maybe I, I did something better in this or I feel a sense of accomplishment in this. Um, or like in Harriet, I, I really learned a thing about storytelling and, and, and this sort of revelatory. Uh, I, I really learned to kind of use misdirect in a way. Or like, so there's certain things I achieve in each book that I, maybe I think I did that thing better. But no, it's like saying love your children, really, because right, they're right. like my children. You can't. But I know you love your one kid better. I yeah. know that, so. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? It's impossible, really. I mean, yeah. and I, I can't even objectively say, like, it's a really hard question for me to ask, like, because you, you really get asked that all the time. Not not what's your favorite, but which book should I start with? Mm-hmm. So you would think you would lead with the thing you think is your like strongest to, I like, work. I like to read people chronologically if I have to pick. That's kind of where I end up. I go start at the beginning. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, you know, I, I feel pretty strong about all of them. But like, I think if I had one that I, even if I wasn't admitting it, if I had one I thought was the best, I think I'd always say that one. And I, I never know what to say. I usually don't start with West of Here, though. 
because I know that it's so divisive. It's either going to be a book somebody loves or they're just not going to get through it. So that's the one thing I'd say. I don't start with that. But many would say that that's my best book. I wouldn't necessarily agree, but. Yeah. I mean, I've been, it's different for everybody, you know, and I understand that you, you can't pick. They're like your kids. Um, so in the next book, you're how far along in? It's done. It's done. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 Molly hasn't eviscerated it yet or anything like that, and it hasn't got to Chuck, but I'm feeling really good about it. I mean... What's it about? Can you give us any hints? It's kind of a companion to West of Here, like topically anyway. It takes place in the North Cascades, and, and, and uh, part of it takes place in uh, on the Cordilleran Ice Sheet, like 13,000 BC, kind of end of the Neolithic, kind of first feminist single mom on ice. Okay. There's a little bit of a comedy. I mean, it's not a comedy, but there's a comic. There's a very... It, 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 it's got a comic lightness to it in that there's a, a very much a modernism. You know, like the relationship between the teenage boy and the mom is like a modern relationship between a teenage boy and a single mom, which, you know, I did. And then the other half is, uh, uh, the other, the other sort of conversant line is about, um, uh, a, a, a damaged Iraq, uh, combat veteran who, uh, lives in a cave in the North Cascades with his, with his daughter. And, um, as the book evolves, you see how the two stories are organically, you know, related. You don't really know that yet, but you know, that was, that's kind of the challenge of the book because they're both really exciting storylines and you're seeing like West of here, you have place holding it together. So, you know, it's a novel of place. So you have some, some cohesion there, but then, then, then there's a reason that that's something that really ties it all together and makes it satisfying. And then are you working on a book beyond that now, too? I have some ideas, but it's only character sketches. Jesus Christ, dude. It's going to be called Small World, and it's going to be like 900 pages long. <laughs> I just like the idea. At first, I was going to write a 900-page book about gentrification called Tiny. I just like the idea. I mean, I know it's stupid. I just want to write a big old doorstop that has the word small or yeah, tiny you know, like in If it. you're going to do 15 books, you've got to have at least one that's just like that huge. I mean, what's <laughs> no, it here? Sort one of... that everybody buys and nobody wants to actually read. Yeah. Now, I I, I don't know how big it'll be, but it's going to be called, I know that I want to, character is where I live, character is what I do, even West of here is really character driven, even though, you know, it's just that the place is a character. I know that I want to spread my characters over the globe, but I, I got to figure out a, a mechanism or some way to tie them together. And I don't want it to be that convergent event or that, I don't want to do it in any of the tropish ways. But I don't want it to be as obscure as like Cloud Atlas, where it's just a birthmark or something holding it all together. So I, I don't know what the connectivity is. So my 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 philosophy on this is I'm going to start sketching out the characters, and ho hopefully, as I'm sketching out the characters, they will lead me to like what are the logical connections between these people, you know? But I just don't want it to be tropey. I don't want it to like use the butterfly effect to tie it all together. Or, you know, I just don't know. What about reading? Like you are doing all this writing work and you've got your system down. Where does reading fit in? Like how much do you do? What kind of reading do you tend to do? Is it, are you constantly reading novels? You constantly... It's really sad, Brad. I mean, it's almost embarrassing how, I mean, I maybe read one book a month and it's usually something I'm blurbing and they're usually good books, but I'm not choosing them. So it always feels a little, you know, I've got to, I mean, I want to be reading Annie Proulx's Barkskins right now. And, you know, it's been sitting on my desk for, you know, three months Then you know, Meanwhile, somebody's editor is like, hey, you know, we got a June deadline. And, and, you know, so eventually I should probably just start saying no to these things. 
But, you know, my philosophy all along was if I'm just a total blurb whore, eventually I'll just work myself out of the market. Right. <laughs> but everybody else is such a dick about it. Nobody stops asking. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I know he blurbs everything, but hey, he'll say yes. Yeah. So, I, I mean, eventually, I mean, yeah, Barkskins is big on my list of books to read right now. That's the book I'm just like slab, you know, I just really want to get, get, get my hands on it, but I, ha- I haven't been able to yet. Um, I, I just, you know, I reread, um, my, my pal, Willie Vlotten, who you had on the show. I just reread Don't Skip Out on Me, which I had read, you know, a few years ago in manuscript because we exchanged manuscripts. Um, so I reread that. Um, what else have I read recently? Do you do research? Like I'm the reading what? a book by Rick Buckley, the death metal singer that, you know, Tyson's publishing. Oh, I just really? started that. I'm not deep enough into it. To Tyson really, Cornell yeah, of Rare Bird. Rare Bird. Let, yeah. So I'm reading that and I'm going to blurb it. And then, uh. Also, uh, Brian Jabba Smith, a uh, writer, uh, old rock and roll friend who lives in Arizona, is, uh, is is releasing a collection of his work for the Tucson Weekly. He was like a, he was there for like twenty years, and he wrote all these great uh, personal essays. And so I'm um, I'm going to start that next. Well, we'll see. You're, you're reading some shit, but like mm-hmm. when it comes to mostly talking about reading, some shit. <laughs> you and me both. Uh, but when it uh, comes to the the novels that you're writing, especially like when you're talking about place and the neo Paleolithic or whatever you said, thirteen thousand later Neolithic. Yeah, yeah. the last glacier. You've got to be doing some research, right? Yeah, yeah, and and some of this research is research I've done for other things before, and I knew. I mean, I've always, you know, I originally just just trying to figure. You know how confusing the Puget Sound waterways are. No, so, but well, I, take I, your I mean, word there's just it. so many inlets and like faux canals that aren't really canals, and like it's just an amazing. You know, I mean, it takes you a lifetime to really find your way around there. And it all kind of came more into clear focus when I realized it was all an ice sheet and there was all these moraines that are, you know what I mean? I could, I could understand the region better. So I've been kind of studying this stuff for a long time. But um, a lot of my research has been just working with um, interviewing Iraq combat vets because, you know, when I write outside of my experience, you can't hit any false notes, you know? I'm not an 80-year-old woman, but I pulled it off. So when I first started with my Iraq vet thing, I didn't want to get, I didn't want to get combat vets involved right away because... I know from experience when you start getting people involved early in the process, they're going to want to make it their story because it's their experience. So I want to know what I need my scenes to accomplish. And then they work with me almost collaboratively, like help me make this. So, you know, does this work? How do we make this work? Is it realistic? Yeah. Yeah. And so like when you first start, like I, I find a New York times article about like, you know, uh, you know, Iraq, uh, combat slang, you know what I mean? And so I'm like trying to sound, you know, you smelling the coffee on my breath as I'm like, so they went back to the chew, you know, and CHU, which stands for something, something. habitation, something, you know, you know, and then according to the New York times, this is the language. And then uh, I show it to my first, my first, uh, combat reader. And he's like, what the fuck's a chew? I'm looking up at my shelf. Cause I just talked to Will Mackin on here. Uh, on the show and he is a navy seal he was like in the navy for 22 years and was in iraq and afghanistan and published a collection to like rave reviews and uh you could probably find some good stuff in there Things yeah i need it i need a marine because it's got to be very marine specific oh. so i found three or four guys who had been really helpful I, I found this one guy my friend paul who i went to high school with and he he's hilarious he'll sound like a, this sounds like a navy credit union commercial <laughs> he writes these really <laughs> funny he kind of eviscerates certain parts but overall he said i did a really good job but it, uh, one of the problems was like this slang that i found was not this is we know this as writers like this is why it helps to know your subject because there's a shorthand for anybody who's an 
expert in anything. There's always this shorthand. There's always this language. They never use the technical language. So he goes, I told him what I thought that you, he goes, no, we just call it a can. So, you know, that's the first wave is you get, get the language right. But then experientially, like, uh, you know, I, uh, my friend Dave Coates was an EMT. So like when the baby was delivered in, um, you know, I don't know how to deliver a baby, like in Revised Fundamentals. So I had already written the scene kind of, but I had him go through and take me through it and just make sure that everything was real. You just can't hit any false notes. And that right. can be hard when you're working outside your experience. Because we all have that experience of reading when it's like, here comes the information dump. You know, like the ex-journalist writes this novel and it's just, yeah. there's just too much info. You got to really find a way to fit it in there. So that that would I, I would that's been more my research than anything and now you know how to deliver a baby yes i do i don't i mean in theory okay. it must be pretty easy a lot of cavemen did it you yeah, know right? what i'm saying can't sound I'm that smarter than them right <laughs> bigger cranial capacity well it's good to see you man oh it's great to see You're you always, like, i first... wish everyone could see you in your green sweats with your great hair i, uh, I love brad's hair i'm so jealous i, I got this sad little <laughs> wispy comb over going on under my hat but brad's got this it looks it's just laying just right. Hey, I'm these... lucky. I got a lot of baldness in my uh, family. My mom's brothers, you know, I'm her father, but for some reason I'm hanging on to my yeah, hair. It looks good, man. All right, dude. Well, the, Thanks for having me. This is my third time, right? Yeah. Is, is and, that the and as tired as you uh, claim to be, as ragged as you have run yourself, you uh, are incredible. You have an incredible source of energy. Well, you brought it out, so thank you. Okay, there's Jonathan Everson. His new novel is called Lawn Boy, available from Algonquin Books. You can find him online at jonathanevison.net. He's on Twitter. His handle is at Jonathan Everson. The novel, one more time, is called Lawn Boy. Go get your copy. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support the program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget there's an Other People app. It is free. Everything is free. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. Thank you, as always, to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music and the band Cigarette Royalty for the uh, music that you're listening to now, the transitional music, the interstitial music. Somebody on Twitter this week pointed out that I like to use the word interstitial. I don't know what else to call it. Isn't it interstitial music? I'm just trying to be accurate in my language. Isn't that what this is all about? Why do you have to mock me? So, what can I say? Trying to concentrate in my life. Trying to get shit done. Trying to be a good boy. Trying to honor God. (laughs) I don't mean to make fun. You know, like, I love John Coltrane. I love that whole story. I find that story very uh, instructive. Story of his life. His rise, his fall his rise, his real rise, you know, and then the tragic death. It's a very uh, sad but beautiful story that music carries through. So I get it. I wish I got it better. I think that's secretly what I want, or not even secretly. It's what I want. I want to have one of those lives where I have that kind of breakthrough, or maybe that's just apocryphal. Does that really happen? I want the flash. I want the bolt of lightning. Where is it? Hello? (laughs) 